please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Possibly one of the most well-known Bible stories from what I uh, read recently. Uh, We had started two weeks ago uh, talking about how do we get back to basics as a church? How do we put our focus on where our focus is supposed to be, not from my opinion, but rather from the Word of God. And I, I told you the story of, uh, as a church planner moving down here, we had three years worth of plans of what we thought was the most strategic way to start a church and to grow a church. And having been part of a church plant and part of churches, I thought I had it all figured out. Something I now tell church planners is that moment right before you start church services, enjoy it, because that is the smartest you will ever be. After that, it is a process of learning just how dumb you truly are, and it hasn't eight years in, and I'm still just getting dumber. So, but I had thought, (laughs) I had thought that uh, we had this like code broke, right? Like this is how you are going to do church successfully, and then uh, sitting in uh, what's called the Cypress Project, and Neil McGlowan said, did you make a bunch of plans, and you're just planning on God coming along with you because it's a church after all, or have you stopped and said, God, how are you moving, what are you doing, and how do we align with what you have? Uh, that answers shortly why we meet on Saturday night. Uh, we started looking around instead of what should we do to grow a church the fastest and said, what do we do in order to reach a demographic of people who aren't being reached? Thus, people work Sunday mornings in this area, whether it's through military or whatever. So we'll just take ownership of Saturday night. Uh, we'll just go there and reach the people that God brings to us uh, so that we are doing what he has called us to do. Uh, we said two weeks ago that movement, when we were talking about God's movement, Uh, Number one, God is always on the move. God is always on the move. God is on a redemptive mission among every man, woman, and child, requiring the multiplication of missionary disciples, leaders, and churches. And as we go on, we'll talk more about those specifically. It's not about how big I don't feel called to grow a church to a massive church. If I did Saturday night, it's not the way to go. Just a little clue. If you want a big church, do Sunday mornings. Uh, How do we raise disciples, uh, not to add them, but to make them so that they multiply other disciples? A phrase you'll hear us say is, a disciple maker isn't a disciple maker until they make disciples who makes disciples. Uh, How do we continue to multiply leaders, not add more, but multiply them out who are going to go and train other leaders? And then churches, instead of trying to grow a big church, how do we send out more church planners to do what God has called them to do separately and following after what God has called them to do. But we talk a lot in this bigger aspect of this is what it is for churches, but also know this drops down on a very personal level as well, because God should never be the co-pilot in our life or our family or our church. We should be on his mission, not on our own. A lot of times we think, oh, this is for the church, but in my own private life, and what I do professionally and what I do with my family, that's my business, that's nobody's business. No, God has given you a specific mission for you professionally, for your family, for your involvement in your church. Uh, All of those things go down to that level as well to see, okay, God, how are you moving and how do I join with you? Please understand that since the beginning, 
Since creation, God has invited us to join with him in what he is doing. But too often we come up with our own plan and hope he comes with us. My story about the church and saying we're going to figure this out and we're going to do it, and of course God will come with us. It's a church. We do that same thing in our own personal lives. I'm going to do this. This is the fastest way to success, and of course God will come with me. I go to church twice a month. But usually our plan can be very clearly described by someone in the Bible. If you're wondering who, I already told you to turn to the book of Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. You might know the story of Jonah. God calls him to go to a city. He doesn't want to go to that city, so he goes the opposite direction. Storm shows up. He gets thrown overboard. Fish picks him up. The very first Uber, I believe, in history. And drops him, spits him off, and then he says, okay, God, I'm going to obey you. I want to look a little bit more in depth at this story tonight. And to help you understand it a little bit better, let's just start off in chapter 1. Verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. At this point, it is believed, because uh, Jonah's only mentioned one other time, and that was as a prophet of the same name, uh, Jonah bar Amittai, meaning son of. So they think he was a prophet in the king's court in Israel. Uh, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Stop there. All right. We don't know a ton about Nineveh at this point, more than likely. This is a very real thing that's happening right now in Israel. They were uh, brutally and viciously, through terrorism, attacked. Uh, they are now responding in an all-out war against what was done to them. For Jonah, to help relate this, Jonah is in the northern kingdom of Israel. More than likely in his lifetime, if it matches up correctly, which we won't know, this side of glory, Assyria, who was, the best way to describe Assyria is they invented what the Romans perfected. They were the world-conquering power that invented brutal ways of torturing people. Uh, if you were here back on Easter, we talked about the crucifixion being what the Assyrians had started in when they said they would spike people. Uh, they would take people and put them over a sharp tree and pierce them uh, from between their legs up through their stomach and then leave them there just to bleed out gore horrifically to die. And they would do this outside of the city in the same way the Romans would crucify people outside of the city as a warning, do not mess with us. The Syria would go through and they had this uh, system that, again, the Romans and other world powers uh, throughout history would do and they would come in. So they came into Israel and they massacred Israel. And then they took 30,000 Israelites as their slaves back to their capital, which was Nineveh. And then they would appoint their own people to be in charge, and they would force the women to intermarry with their men to introduce their culture, and they would take hostage this entire culture of Israel. And Jonah would have lived to have seen this. He would have lived to have seen these atrocities done to his people by this enemy force and now being forced to serve with basically a puppet king to do the bidding of the Assyrian Empire. And so now when God comes and says, Jonah, I have a special mission for you. You're going to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians. Now, I don't know any of this. We don't know. Jonah's family may have been annihilated by the Assyrians. Jonah's family may have been the ones taken as slaves. We, I don't know. It's a possibility. And now God is calling him to go preach the gospel to these people. 
So all of a sudden, you realize that he's in this place of knowing that possibly torture and certain death are his guarantees on this mission. To a people group that is known, and I mean to study historically, I haven't even scratched the surface of the graphic nature in which they figured out how to torture and kill people in the Assyrian Empire. And it was well known, especially by their enemies and the people they conquered. And so now all of a sudden, Jonah running makes a lot more sense. Jonah's saying like, oh, Nineveh's that way? I'm going in the opposite direction. Nineveh is now uh, would be in modern-day northern Iraq on the border of Turkey and Syria, uh, up in that area. So yes, follow with me. So in verse 3, maybe it's circled. I can't see which number. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Hopefully now that sentence makes more sense for you. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for a port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Underline that, flee from the Lord. Tarshish, again, is on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, it is believed. So as far opposite direction of what God calls him to do. Verse 4, God demonstrates you can't get out of his reach. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now, this is where I'm going to add my own opinion, and I'll get into it, into the book. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Doesn't that sound valiant? Doesn't that sound like the self-sacrificing guy is going to spare himself for all the soldiers? I think later on when we get to chapter 4, uh, we will see that he was like, at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. Let's see God do something with this if they throw me into the sea. I'll accept my punishment. Just throw me into the sea, and uh, yeah, it's not the ending I wanted, but it's better than the ending that would definitely come to me if I went to the home of my enemies and proclaimed, God is God. So he's still doing God's work, right? He's like, hey, I serve the one true Lord. And everyone's like, oh, wow. And he's like, so throw me into the sea. And he's, again, kind of a hero. I will sacrifice myself into the stormy sea to save you. But instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. 
At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I've heard Jonah called the reluctant evangelist because he just seems to do everything wrong, and people keep coming to the Lord. Okay, so that should help us see that God is always moving. God is always moving in the lives of people. He is inviting us to join him on his mission. And even, I don't call him the reluctant evangelist, I call him the disobedient evangelist. He's doing the opposite of what God asked him to do, and people are still turning to God. So all of these men on the boat who were all praying to their own God just moments before now understand who the one true God is. And they threw Jonah overboard. In the last verse, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you've ever been in situations like me in life, and you find yourself being thrown overboard, I have not found that, I'm just saying, similar situations that you're just like, well, this is going terrible. And so Jonah, I think, in his mind, as they are throwing him overboard, is like, all right, I had a good run. At least I didn't have to go to Nineveh. And then I'm picturing Jonah, if it was me, and all of a sudden you're engulfed by a fish, and you're still alive, and just going, you've got to be kidding me. Now this. But in the process, Jonah has a long time to think about it. We had a conversation in our community group uh, two weeks ago. And the question was, uh, when was the moment that you really understood what it was to know God? Like maybe it was as an adult, maybe, it was, maybe you uh, asked Christ to be your savior, the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life as a child, but then at some moment, uh, your faith became your own. It was no longer, uh, depending on your background, it was no longer what your parents did, or it was no longer one of those things. It all of a sudden became, oh, this is for real, and this is what I believe. And sometimes it takes some form of tragedy. It takes something being done uh, to us. It, it takes something where now we have to own up to something that we did, uh, or you find yourself in, uh, and we, see, we hear the story of prison cells, a rehab center, what, whatever it is, you find yourself Uh, And the only thing you can do is think. And in Jonah's case, that place was in the belly of a whale for three days. Uh, I knew coming out of sabbatical, I said something I have to do is pray more. Uh, That's when something God has laid on my heart. And I would start praying, God, help me to find the time to pray. Don't do that. Because he will. For me, it was 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. all the time. I would wake up at 2 a.m., could not fall back asleep, be so frustrated because I'd been up with the boys or something had happened, and I'm like, why can't, I'm tired, I know I'm tired, why can't I sleep? And it would almost click because I asked God to help me find time to pray. And then I would start praying, and then I would be able to fall back asleep. And I would think, and you know how you have those unbelievably clear thoughts at 4 a.m. that totally evaporate by the morning? I would think, I have to make time to pray or God will help me find time to pray, and I need to align my schedule better. And then at 6 a.m., you go back to the same thing. So now I'm really trying to find time to pray better for Jonah that came in the belly of a whale. And he really prays. Chapter 2 is Jonah um, praying, basically, and it's this beautiful piece of poetry, and in the original language, there's a lot of plays on words, so we're not going to jump into that, but Jonah has his time to think. And I want you to drop down to verse 8. 
please read the book of Jonah on your own. But verse 8, at the end of this uh, poetic prayer, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Speaking of vomiting, thank you for praying for us last weekend. I'm sorry we had to delay this. But I want you to look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols. Jonah, in his time of recognition, realized that what was driving what he was doing was a worthless idol. And again, I don't know, the text doesn't say it, but my own assumption is the worthless idol that he realized was himself. He was so involved in self-preservation and protecting numero uno that he was very willing to disobey a God who had given him a very clear direction. Which reminds me, I didn't give you point number one for chapter one. Chapter one. Ask yourself the question, are you listening and obeying or running and hiding? Are you listening and obeying or running and hiding? And sometimes we can ask the question and we go back to Jonah, pretend we haven't gone through chapter 2 yet. We go back to Jonah and we, we say, oh, I wish God talked to me or gave me clear commands like he did Jonah. I would never disobey God if he did that. Real quick. God has given us very clear commands in his scripture. Number one, the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets, all of the writings. What we are supposed to do can be summarized in love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor, which is every other human being you come in contact with, as yourself. The second command or commission is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm just giving you the two that stand out where he says, go! It is a command as an officer to his soldier, go and preach the gospel, making disciples of every nation. Go. That is a command. It's not an option. There are no uh, ways to get out of this. So we have, God has spoken to us very clearly in his word and through his Holy Spirit. He is talking to us. God's mission has stayed the same since the beginning. We can run and we can hide. We can even come up with our own ideas with good intentions. Jonah could look back and say, you know, God, I didn't necessarily obey you, but this whole ship of sailors got saved, right? That's still good. It was done out of disobedience. When we look at our good intentions, we have to ask ourselves the question, does it match up with what God is doing? What mission are we on? What is the driving force that we are on and does it match up with what God is doing? We have so many forms of running and hiding today. So many forms of running and hiding. Uh, when COVID first hit, and I remember thinking like, I'm just, again, my idol, I confess, is sports. I love sports. Sports I didn't even know I was interested in, so like curling. I can turn on curling and be like, I don't quite understand this. I actually do because I'm from near Canada, I'm just using it as an example. And I was like, I don't know. And five minutes later, I'm like coaching the players on TV how to do it better. I've never done it in my life. Uh, I love sports, and all of a sudden, all sports were canceled. I'm like, finally, I'll get this reading list done. I mean, it was 20 minutes, and I had 19 other distractions that filled my time. 
Why? Because Satan loves to offer distractions. Even when distractions are taken away to an unbelievable degree, we will find something to distract us from spending time with God. We will find something that seems like it's good, and we will replace what's best with it quickly. So are you listening and obeying, or are you running and hiding? We get to chapter 2, which we've already covered. You ask yourself the question, are you doing what is good in place of what is best? Are you doing what is good in place of what is best? Jonah points out that there are idols he is clinging to, and I think his idols were safety and comfort. He was, he was operating on, on man's wisdom and saying, well, this is a safer option. Yes, God clearly told me to go to Nineveh, but how could he? I'm a pretty good prophet, and if I go there, I'll die. So what makes sense to me is going to Tarshish. I'll still preach there, don't worry. And it sounds like that's something we wouldn't do. When in reality, we find good things to replace the commands of God every day. So we leave chapter 2 with Jonah being vomited onto dry land. And this is a second chance for Jonah. Chapter 3, starting verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So I think here we can almost see Jonah preaching out of what I'll say is hatred, and it makes it sound like I'm making that up. We'll get to that in a little bit. But He's preaching because of, I think there's this sense that he knows and he, he believes in his heart that he's going to die, that they will torture and they will kill him. And so this is his vengeance, is he gets to tell the Ninevites that in 40 days, God is going to destroy them. And I think in his mind, he's thinking like Sodom and Gomorrah, like God, bring down raining fire and sulfur and just do it in for these guys. Yes, they'll kill me, and I may not be around to see the destruction of Nineveh, but I know God can destroy cities like no one else. And so he is preaching, turn in 40 days, or you will all surely die. And I'm wondering if Jonah felt, and again, this is just my add-on here. I can justify it in the next chapter, I promise. If he's feeling really good about himself, and he's seeing all these people, and he's just filled with hatred because of what they did to his people, because of the atrocities that they committed to his home country. And then verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? 
God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Imagine, and again, Jonah, who in his heart hated these people, in his heart wanted to see them punished for what they had done, wanted to see them punished for because of their uh, atrocities, the evil that they had committed to not just his country, but all of these other countries that they had conquered. And he preaches, and the entire city turns to follow God. This is like the greatest evangelical message ever proclaimed with an unbelievable amount. Like it's, I've heard stories from missionaries come back like we had one million people saved. And you're like, that is a lie because there's, there's only 50 people in that town. Uh, that's something that you hear growing up. Here, the entire city turns. His preaching that was coming from not a good place literally affected the animals of the city because they were no longer getting water and food. The, wa- the animals, by word of the king, could not eat along with the people as they called out and repented from their sins and, and went to God. So chapter 3. Do you expect the unexpected in your obedience? Do you expect the unexpected in your obedience? We keep saying it. God is always on the move. We are just called to obey, to obey God. Ephesians chapter 3, a verse I've mentioned already a couple times since being back. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Paul is talking about how he prays for the Ephesian believers, how he prays for the church. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If we honestly expected what God to do, what only he could do, our obedience level would change drastically. This is a challenge to our faith. Jonah, who was there out of reluctancy, who was there after disobeying, who was there with a bad heart, hoping to see these people destroyed. And instead they turned to God. Why? Because God does what only God can do. Those people that you work with, the people that are in your home, the people that you, you name it, that you have written off because they would never come to know God might be the very same people that God is going to use to affect the people around them because when someone like that turns and follows God, people pay attention. 
because it's God doing what only God can do. You, sitting here tonight, might have a similar story to that, saying, I never thought this, but God did what only God can do. This is a challenge to our faith. Do we pray for God to do what he can only do? When we pray for the people around us, when we pray and we see the people that we interact with daily, weekly, whatever it is, do we pray for them like we do? I uh, read the book recently, uh, Wells on Sabbatical, um, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was um, a missionary and he went to, uh, this is in the long, early 1800s, I believe, uh, numbers aren't my thing, and he was called to go to the wild, wild west. That wild west part back then was known as what is now Western Long Island. And he went to reach the Native Americans in what is, I think now where the New York Islanders play hockey in what is now Nassau, Long Island. And he went there to reach the Native Americans. And then he went from there way out west to the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. But in reading through his diary of him praying and praying and him saying, I wrestled with God over the souls of these people because they have turned to alcohol, they have turned to this, and they kill each other, and oh, do they need God. And it says that morning and at night, he would, his words, wrestle with God over the souls of these people. Most of them, he didn't even speak their language yet. And he would go into a village and just start preaching until somebody would volunteer saying, I know English and I know their language, I'll translate for you. And he talks about how he didn't feel well that day. Uh, he would go on to die at the age of 29 years old because while he was doing all this and traveling on horseback and being stuck in winters where his one horse broke its leg and he had to shoot it and get stuck in a blizzard by himself, he was fighting tuberculosis the entire time without realizing it. And in his diary he would say, I probably coughed up too much blood today. And he would go on and eventually die, but had started multiple churches and had seen people come to follow Christ to a people group that most people didn't want anything to do with. And it was affecting me because I said, do I wrestle with God over the souls of the people that God has placed in my life? Do I stay up at night or wake up early in the morning because I am taking ownership of the lostness in my city and I can't imagine somebody perishing not knowing God, somebody who I say that I love and I care for, let alone the people that I do not like? Do I wrestle with God over their souls? Do I believe that God can do what only God can do in the lives of people? Lucas Pulley said that God's mission is more diverse and creative than our vision can capture. Why? Because we so often rely on human wisdom. We do what makes sense to us because God is in the business of doing things that are just unfathomable. So chapter 3, Jonah goes reluctantly, disobediently, with a wrong heart, preaches for people to turn from God, and the entire city the capital city of his enemy, the enemy of his people, turned towards God. And then we see his reaction in chapter 4. Verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. This is what I'm telling you. The reason why I think he was preaching with hatred in his heart, the reason I think he was preaching because he wanted to see these people punished, the reason that I think he didn't want to go there in the first place, he didn't want anything to do with these people. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's why I think he had him throw him overboard because he just didn't care. He would rather die than have to go to Nineveh. And here he's saying to see the city. It wasn't he wasn't reluctant, he was disobedient. It wasn't that he had a good heart with good intentions. He hated these people. And even when they turned to God, there was not celebrating, there was only hatred towards them. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I'll get my first tattoo and put that somewhere I see it every day. Is it right for you to be angry? God's saying, in light of what I've done for you. It really demonstrates an entitled attitude of Jonah saying that he was better than these people. He stopped recognizing all that God had done for him and how God called him and his work that he's done for the Lord, not because he deserved it, but because God's on a mission and he invited him into the mission. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Again, this is my take. This isn't what's in the Bible. I think Jonah went out there because he wanted to see that city burn, and he wanted a good seat. He wanted a good seat to see God's vengeance on this city that in his mind deserved the worst. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? End of the book. That's how it ends. Why are you concerned about a plant? I'll tell you why. It gave me comfort. I liked it. That idol we talked about in chapter 2 of self-preservation, of comfort, of privilege, of title, of who he thought he was. He was in the king's chamber in Israel, and now he's underneath a plant, and the plant dies. And he's like, oh, this is just not worth it. I can't even have a plant grow. And God says, how could you? You're upset about a plant. You had nothing to do with that plant. You wanted to see this entire city, men, women, children, and animals, burn. You got a sunburn on your forehead and you can't take life anymore. You don't want any part of it. And he says, but that plant was providing something for me. Not his words, my take. Chapter 4. Are you controlled by your comfort 
or by God's mission? Are you controlled by your comfort or by God's mission? Jonah loved his shade plant more than the souls of lost people. And we can all say, ah, oh, what a terrible person. Our emotions are very telling of what we truly care about. What upset you more this last month? Somebody you know doesn't know Christ. Somebody you work with, live with, know, interact with, and they don't know Christ. They don't know the hope and the joy that comes from knowing Him. Or were you more upset because your sports team lost? Were you more upset because the car didn't do what you wanted it to do when you hoped it would do it? Our emotions are very telling of what we truly care about. The things that we get upset about, the things that make us really frustrated, are usually telling us of an idol getting knocked off the ship. quote I used a long time ago that says, anger is the, the reaction of an idol getting knocked off the shelf. Why do I get upset when my kids don't obey me? Because I'm awesome. Can't they see that? How could they not obey me? I'm worshiping myself, and they aren't, and that's really frustrating to me. The guy cuts me off in traffic, and I get upset at him. Why? Because I'm awesome. And he cut me off. He didn't even think about how awesome I was before he cut me off. That's frustrating that he doesn't worship me like I worship me. Why? Because I'm my idol. My safety and my security and my comfort level are all idols that I hold on to. Never has somebody cut me off and I said, Lord, please save that man's soul. Oh, what if he had hit me and something horrible happened to him? Where would he spend eternity? No, my reaction is, are you kidding me? Do they not have drivers ahead where you're from? Why? Because I'm so concerned about myself. All of these little things that happen throughout the day that upset us are telling us how much we worship ourselves. And we think everyone else should too. We have a saying, we, we say it repeatedly, the gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. We see throughout history, uh, the gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. God didn't come to Jonah and say, Jonah, I got a really easy mission for you. I want you to sit on your couch. I'm going to give you the nicest shade plant in the world. And uh, that's it. That's your ministry. Do it. He called him to go to the place he wanted to go the least to reach the people that he absolutely hated. Why? Because it was a demonstration of God doing in our lives what only God can do. Our time, our money, our relationships, they all tell us more about ourselves than we care to admit. And when we talk and you hear the phrase, are we taking, the, are we taking ownership of the lostness in our city? Uh, when we talk about are we joining God on his mission, that is God's mission. That is God moving where we don't think he is moving. Are we taking the time to stop and to listen to what God is telling us through his word, through his spirit, through prayer, through taking time just to be with him? Or are we still staying so focused on our own mission for our own lives, our own family, all of these things that we think are ours when really they are God's? Are we partnering with him in all of these things? So here's what I want you to do in community groups this week. Have these conversations at home. I want you to think about, number one, this will get your brain going. 
I want you to think about all the ways in the Bible we see God doing something according to his plan and how he invites others to join in. I don't think that's on your notes, so I'm going to say it again. As an opening discussion, I want you to start going through, maybe, maybe you've known God's Word for a long time, maybe you're very new to it, but start having the conversation of when in the Bible, what are the times you see God doing something and He has invited us to join Him on His mission to do what only He can do. Then, I want you to walk through these three questions in your community groups with each other, in your homes. Number one, are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit in your time of reading, praying, and meditating? Sub-question, do you take time to read, pray, and meditate? What does that look like? Is it while you're doing something else? Because I very specifically want you to understand the importance of cutting out time in your schedule, and I know it is difficult. I have children but are you doing what you can do to cut out time to spend time with God alone without distraction? Are you taking time to spend time in prayer? Uh, you've heard me say before, working at different, three different Bible colleges, uh, when people are getting ready to graduate, they're always like, I'm just trying to find out what God's will is for me. And after a while, I learned just to ask the question, how much time do you spend just you reading God's Word? You're not studying for a test, you're just reading God's Word. You're just spending time praying. You're just spending time thinking about God's Word. Because you'll find out real quick, I believe, what God's will is for you. And if you're here wondering, well, what does God have for me? Same question. Have you set time aside to spend time alone with God? Question number two. God is calling ordinary people to walk faithfully in obedience with Him. What does this look like for you? Have you ever stopped and looked around in your everyday life and said, where do I see God moving? Who are the people? For us as a church, it was, we just kept meeting people who said, oh, your church sounds neat. I'm sorry, I work Sunday mornings. Problem solved. We'll do church on Saturday night. What is it in your area? Are there people, are there things that God just keeps bringing into your life over and over again? Maybe it's that same person that you see who is holding back tears, and you know you should ask them why, and over and over again you choose not to because it's really going to mess up your schedule. God is calling ordinary people to walk faithfully in obedience with Him. What does this look like for you? And then number three, what comforts are truly idols or distractions keeping you from joining in God's movement? I've said a bunch of times, it seems the longer that somebody has spent their life in church, the longer that somebody has known God, the more excuses they come up with to just flat out disobey God. The more reasons they can put what I call a spiritual, a scriptural band-aid on something and say, it's okay. That's for other people to do. One of my favorite things is to see people who have just come to know Christ. Uh, I hate to call you out again in a message, but baptizing James and Louise just recently and seeing in the video their absolute joy of getting baptized. And I'm, I celebrate with them and I pray for them as I pray for all of you. And then I'm like, oh no, after a while they're going to calm down like the rest of us. And it's so sad. And it's so sad. When we talk about um, David in and, and Psalm 51, he says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Is that joy evident to the people that we are surrounded with every day, every week? 
is the joy of our salvation. Uh, again, we played the video of James and Louise like literally raising their hands and jumping, not just because the water was really cold, but just filled with joy. Is that evident every day of our lives of what it is to know God? What it is to have hope in a hopeless world? What it is to have joy when you're constantly being uh, pounded with sad news and atrocities happening all over the world? Do we stand out because the joy of salvation is evident in our life? Lord, I thank you so much for the time we get to spend together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your spirit who is alive and active and working in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this evening who does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That you'd be working in their hearts as only you can. That, that you would be calling them to yourself. That you would be doing the work that we as humans cannot see, but we know that you are always on the move. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to reveal yourself to us and how we get to partner with an almighty, all-knowing God in accomplishing what you are inviting us in to join you in. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.